This is the Boxing Betting Show with Tom Craze. All right, where were we? So before the entire world was so brutally interrupted, I think if anyone told me back in December when I did the last episode uh, that it would be about seven months before I did the next one, I would have given them at the very least a bit of a funny look. Um, but things change, the world changes, um, and obviously we've had it together a, a fair bit to deal with over the past two months. So here we are, welcome to season two of the Boxing Betting Show. My name is Tom Craze, um, and thank you for joining us. I say joining us, joining me. Um, whether you're a new listener, um, whether you've come back after all these months um, for more, very grateful for for kind of you tuning in and hopefully you stick around for what will be more regular shows again going forward. Um, now we have boxing back. It's um, It's been a while and there's been a few tentative steps, uh, obviously top rank um, and Queensbury and Golden Boy. Uh, and this weekend we have a matchroom back. We have another Queensbury show and we have um, a Showtime PBC card as well. So the whole, uh, the whole gang is back together. Boxing is back, I think, officially from this weekend. Um, and let's go. Let's see what we can do. In terms of the reason why there was a bit of a hiatus, I think look, I think lockdown was probably a, a fairly strange time for a lot of people. But for me, the the absence of boxing came at a time when it, it made sense to to take a natural break. Um, I could I could have put out shows every every week, every other week, every month as I was doing before, but. And, and look, I've got huge respect for the guys who were doing that um, and consistently churning out, putting up good, good content, but with the nicest will in the world, talking pretty much about nothing. Um, and, you know, I should know I listened to it enough of it and I, and I enjoyed it, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. So it took the time out. I hope everyone's been keeping well, been keeping safe. Over the past few months, I've, I've kind of started and, and got involved with more projects than I care to mention um, and and kind of juggling a few things but what I have done is keep brainstorming for the show keep kind of thinking of ways to to bring back this this podcast in a way that improved on the previous um, what I'm going to call season it was a, a, a natural break so we're starting afresh starting with a new uh, kind of renewed focus I've got a notes app on my phone that is absolutely jam-packed with ideas for the show guests to have on, themes for episodes, uh, things to talk about and general kind of brain dump stuff that uh, I'm going to subject you to um, over the next few weeks and months. Some of it will be useful but hopefully you can take something from it. Hopefully you can equip your betting toolkit, your your skill set a little bit and and hopefully we get to enjoy some fights again. It's uh, It's been a long time. Delighted to say uh, first guest on the show in this new series is one of the many voices of Sky Sports Boxing, really, Andy Clark. Be a familiar voice to certainly most boxing observers, particularly in the UK, but increasingly in the US as well. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What exactly does a sports commentator get up to in lockdown? I think that's one of the burning questions that I've got for you. Not, not very much. Um, <laughs> I've been very fortunate because I work for Sky and Sky treated us all uh, amazingly well. So it's okay. not been any kind of, I've got nothing to complain about, basically. I, I do miss boxing. I have missed boxing a lot and I've, I've read a lot about it. I started a little thing 
for a few weeks called Boxing Book Club on Twitter where I just threw out some recommendations and yes, yeah. people to do the same thing and I picked up about 15 or 20 new books from that so I've been reading them. Uh, other than that I've been helping my wife. My wife runs a, a company making chocolate uh, called Lococo Chocolate and she just moved into new premises when lockdown started so I've just been, I stopped doing that two or three weeks ago but for three months I was going in there every day and helping her so that was that was, I mean, it was good for a bit <laughs> to get out of the house, but, but after a while it was, um, yeah, it got a bit repetitive. But again, I was lucky to be able to have that, that kind of outlet. I found it okay. And too, too much like hard work. Yeah, yeah it was. It really was. Um, I don't know how she does it, to be honest. I mean, I have to say, I, um, I, I saw your tweets um, when, when you were doing it and chocolate is one of my I'm pretty clean living these days compared to uh, how things used to be but chocolate is one of the few vices that I do hold and I put in an order when I saw that you were um you were going in and it, it's, it's actually very good I recommend it to anyone listening when the order lists came in um sometimes I look at them and I did see quite a few people I know from from boxing twitter and boxing generally putting in some orders um quite a few reordered but that was just that was really nice because yeah you know, they just recognise that this is a business that she's built up herself over the last five years from nothing, and all of a sudden it's kind of under threat. So, um, and it's done really well in lockdown. It's but it's amazing how these things can be uh, a crisis, but at the same time an, an opportunity. But it was really cool to see people from from the boxing world just putting in an order, really just because they know me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was quite kind of touching almost because um, it's all. You know, it all re really, really helped because at that point at the start as well, um, for, for Amar in particular, morale was really important. Um, and sure. things like that just, uh, you know, helps helps keep your spirits up. So, yeah, thanks to any, anyone who did that. It was, it was brilliant. I think the transformation from boxing commentator to luxury chocolatier is probably the one of the most unlikely job switches during lockdown I guess but um yeah for anyone who has got a sweet tooth like myself lucocochocolate.com so treat yourself to that if you if you can um so back then to your role uh, with Sky Andy you said that they've um, obviously been very good to you during the the lockdown your role has, has has kind of pivoted a little bit over the past few months I say past few months pre-pandemic um from the kind of the main play-by-play -play commentator certainly for, for part of the shows, halfway through the, the shows or before the main events, it, it switches over to, uh, to Adam and, and a, a different colour commentator. But you, you've gone from play-by-play -play to kind of combining that with, I, I guess, an unofficial broadcast judge. I, I can sort of equate it to a British version of Harold Lederman, which is obviously um, high, high praise and, and very big boots to fill. But it's kind of the closest thing we have in this country. How are you finding that? I really enjoy it because it was just a case of Ed Robinson, who's the lead producer of Sky, was just looking to kind of expand my role. Really, I'm I'm definitely first and foremost a commentator, but but as you say, there's Adam Smith is the number one, um, and I'm the number two. So yeah. sometimes I commentate on 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 the entire show if it's an overseas show or Golden Contract or Next Gen or, or the odd Saturday night home one. Um, but if he's there as well, then then he takes over for at least the top two fights, and and Ed just wanted to keep me involved for the rest of the show, really. And I was I was bang up for it right from the start because 
I find the scoring of fights a really interesting subject and it requires you to watch the fight very closely, number one, um, really think about what it is that you're looking for, have a lot of conversations with people, more experienced officials and, and, and the like, and, and also observers, journalists as to what it is that you should be looking for and to have the courage of your convictions to, to, to score the fight and be able to explain your workings and stick to what you say. So it's quite a challenge because there are plenty of people out there who, who fancy they can not do it better than you necessarily, but who will obviously disagree with you often because it is, it is subjective. And, but I, 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 was always, I was always up for that. Um, and I like, I like the inter-round bit where I kind of explain why I've got and how yeah, I've got. absolutely. I think that's the key thing to it, really. I'm not just slapping my score down saying, this is what it is. Um, and anyone who hasn't got this is an idiot because boxing's not like that. You need to be able to, as I say, show your workings. And that way you can explain how, say, eight rounds into a 12 round, that's the kind of time they'll often come to me. You can explain, well, three rounds are pretty clear to one guy, three rounds are pretty clear to the other the other two could go either way. So, you know, we could have a spread here at this point. And you're not, you're not hedging your bets or bottling out. You're just saying it as it is, sensibly. Um, and I think people, I think there's a place for that, definitely. I think there's, I think there's definitely room for that. I, I'm not sure it's the kind of thing that loads of people would fancy because you, you, are, you are opening yourself up to, to, to criticism if that's the kind of thing that bothers you. Um, yeah, it does yeah. me, really, because... Like I say, as long as you know how you've got there and you can explain how you've got there, sometimes you'll get something different from everybody else. But so long as you can, so long as the next day, if, if I think, oh, maybe was I a bit off being with that, I watch it back and I think, no, I can see how I got there. I understand how I got there. Um, and that's, that's, really, <laughs> that's really all you can do with it, to be honest. I mean, I think it's... You, you put it like that, and I hadn't really considered that part of it before. That it's it's quite ballsy to to do that in real time, actually, as well, and say, right, this is how I'm seeing it. And I don't know how much you confer. Presumably, you look over at um, Matt's card or, or um, you know Adam's oh, card, or whoever. I don't, actually, I, don't, I, don't, I try not to confer with anyone. Uh, okay. Clearly, I wouldn't even be listening to the commentary, but mm. you. But I have to wear headphones or earpieces so I know when they're going to come to me. So it's unavoidable that you listen to the commentary because yeah. in an ideal world, I wouldn't. Um, I would just sit there a little bit removed um, and just be in my own little bubble. But that's not quite possible. But now I definitely don't look at anybody else's card. And I always make sure that I write my score down at the end of the round immediately because that's what the judges have to do. Um, so I write it down immediately before I see any replays um, or before anyone's got a chance to tap me on the shoulder and say, how did you have that round? And then once you've written it down, that's it then. You can't change it because they can't change it. Um, you have to try and make it as close to their conditions as you can. Um, with the commentary and being able to hear what people are saying, that makes it a little bit more difficult. But you do have pretty much the exact same view that one of the judges will have. Whereas if I'm, if I'm at home, then I could turn off the commentary and I could recreate that side of it really accurately, but then I'm not there. So it's, you know, so when I'm kind of practicing at home or, or just out of my own curiosity scoring a fight at home, it's easier to isolate yourself. But it's, you do need to be there, really, to get a sense of 
what is landing and with what weight because that's you know that's really important yeah i, I think that's a that, that's kind of a key point and it's, it's one that you hear quite a lot when people are discussing how a judge got to a certain score particularly if it's a score that differs from whoever's watching along at home and, and keeping their own scorecard that scoring from ringside is is very different even i mean even scoring from the arena but certainly scoring at, at ringside when you're literally close enough to to kind of get covered in the in the sweat and and really feel those punches land there's a different i guess emphasis on almost what you're looking out for and, and it doesn't surprise me at all that there is so much of a, a, a difference sometimes between television um television judges let's say um and and those actually at ringside with that in mind the obviously throughout lockdown it, i think it was discussed by the wbc the idea of remote judging to my knowledge that hasn't come kind of come to any fruition so far but how do you think that would affect things overall and, and do you think that's a viable alternative given the um the, the kind of the global situation at the moment well it looks like in all the shows that have been going so far that it's that it's been okay to have the judges at ringside and as long as that continues to be the case i don't see anybody doing remote judging uh, i have heard this suggested as a as a means of doing it before we had covid19 because people were arguing that if you put the officials in a room at the venue um away from all crowd and prying eyes and all outside influences and they watch it on a monitor and therefore they're all seeing exactly the same pictures rather than getting different views from each side of the ring that that would be better and i understand why people might say that but i don't agree with it because it is difficult on tv to get an idea of you know what weight and with what effect punches uh, landing again you could argue that they're all seeing the same thing but you don't there's nothing good about everybody getting it wrong um there's no consistency to be valued in that so right. I, I don't see that as a as a solution I, actually for these for these fight camp shows that we've got coming up for, due to limited numbers i'm not going to be at the first two and i was thinking to myself oh, i could say to ed um but i could still do a card just off the tv and then i thought about it and i thought no i don't i don't want to do that because that's not that's not right you know, that's not how it's done what I wanted to touch on now, now we've mentioned that in, in this kind of post COVID-19 um, environment that we're in, you've actually already had an experience of a socially distanced boxing show, which was this past weekend, as we're recording now, which uh, over in, in Germany, in Magdeburg, Germany, for the Caballero Lazaridis show, um, which went out on, I believe, ESPN Plus. And again, you posted up this picture on, on Twitter with yourself kind of touring the arena and spam back around to yourself and you had a uh, kind of full face visor on. Was that something that was in operation for the entire show or was, was that just for, um, for effect? No, you had to wear that for the whole show. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've got it here actually. It's just, just next to me in my, um, in my study. But, but yeah, when we arrived, it was, um, you had to wear it, you had to wear it. And that was fine you know that's just the way it was and, and and they're very very clear so it made absolutely no difference whatsoever uh, a couple of other broadcast teams didn't seem super pleased about it but again you know 
just get over it. Everybody's got to do it. And you can't really wear a mask when you're commentating because it will muffle and the sound won't come through properly. So the, the face shield was, was absolutely fine. But, but yeah, that, that was really enjoyed that show. It, it was outside, obviously, which, which is a big help. And it was a kind of concert venue, outdoor music venue, um, surrounded by a lake and nice green fields, not the kind of place you normally go. And there were 525 people there. I was going to so say, think, yeah, it, it had a crowd, didn't it? It was socially distanced, presumably, but... Yeah, they were, they were. It was the first show in Germany with a crowd. I think it might have been the first show in Europe with a crowd, actually. Mm. Yeah, it was very well done. It was very well done. Everybody understood what they needed to do and and not do and it, to be honest it was just really interesting going to to another country because of course we're all aware that this is going on everywhere else but when you actually go somewhere else i realized that it really is going on everywhere else it just that sounds like a mad thing to say but it it, it really brings it home to you that this is a worldwide thing because uh, germany the streets there were empty like more empty than they are in well i live in east london which is a busy place but yeah um you know, it was a ghost town, Magdeburg. It really was. Okay. Uh, you've been kind of keeping very busy, actually. You, you did the commentary, I think, last night as we're going, as we're going out here on the, uh, the first Al Siesta show from, from Belarus. That's right. That was me, me and Barry Jones. But, but again, this is, this is a good, it is a good kind of little snapshot of how these things are being done now. Yeah. So we didn't go to Belarus. Um, Al Siesta... Um, is a very kind of like forward-thinking guy, and he's got a company called Kiswi involved, who do casting platforms, basically. So he, me and Barry didn't even need to be in the same place. Um, so he was at his house in West London. I'm, I'm at mine, and you've got the cast of the broadcast basically on your laptop, uh, and you commentate off that and. It was fine, like it was totally fine, even though we weren't in the same place because Barry's a really experienced commentator. Um, it, it was it was easy. And what do you kind of think overall then, or I guess more broadly with regard to boxing's own kind of project restart? Obviously you've had the top rank um, bubble, you've got the matchroom um, fight camp coming up, the Queensbury shows from the Stratford studio as well. Have you managed to catch any of those fights so far? Yeah, I've watched, I've watched I mean, most of everything, really. Um, Top Rank have obviously been pumping out the shows from an early stage, and they've got a big stable, and they've got fighters they need to need to keep happy. I wouldn't say that many fights on their bills have been all that competitive a lot of the time, uh, and I think it is really important that you're always putting out competitive fights at the moment because that's what I think that's that's got to be the kind of main motivation. Uh, good fight between Brad Foster and James Beach on the first BT show. Yeah, that, that was excellent. Yeah, yeah. Other than that, it was prospects in learning fights, and there's always a place for that, but you don't want too many of them at the minute. And the Matchroom Fight Camp, to give Matchroom credit, um, and this isn't sky bias, I mean, there's some good, good fights on those cards. Uh, they've taken their time with it, um, and they've made some good matches. Are you involved in any of that, did you say, or, or kind of not for the first? few shows until they kind of pan it out and then i'm doing the third one um um, and and the pay-per-view um i'm looking forward to yeah it's 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 you know people have had to think hard about how they're going to do things and they're kind of little collector's items aren't they almost these lockdown shows they're things you'll look back on um in years to come hopefully 
and think what a strange passage of time this was. What a strange world, yeah, yeah. To kind of bring the conversation back around to, I, I guess, kind of mainly why I've, I've got you on the show. Um, and the main gist of the show, as, as you all know, is obviously to look at everything from a, a betting perspective or as, as best as, as we possibly can. Um, and the reason that I've got you on is, is for that kind of emphasis on scoring. Uh, and it, it's something I've touched on a little bit before, but I think the idea of putting money or, or any kind of substantial amount of money on a fight where you're not, I say able to, but kind of not critically um, aware enough almost of, of almost what you're watching. And, and it, it's a challenge for any any kind of fan, really, whether you're a, a kind of dyed-in-the-wall hardened fan or, or, or newer to the sport. You have to understand what, what's unfolding in front of you. And whether that's watching a fight live or going back and saying, OK, we've got this fight coming up at the weekend. I quite fancy the, the price on the favourite here, let's say. Let's check out some of the tape. To then go back and, and watch how that fight unravelled is crucial, but in what I'm trying to say, that's almost quite problematic in itself because you're then saying, okay, I'm watching about this fight. I know that he won. Let's let's take Joe Joyce, for example. I know that Joe Joyce won his last fight and I know he won it by X method. Already I'm looking, I'm, I'm trying to rescore a fight, which I know the outcome of. I know probably the scores if I've kept up to date with the fight re um, reports and, and box and so on. So the way I'm watching that fight and, and particularly where I'm scoring that fight is completely different to how it would be if I was doing it independently as it unfolded on, on a Saturday night. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that that all goes around to how well you can do that at the time in real time of your own kind of volition. Um, obviously what a lot of people do now is, is, is follow a fight along on, on Twitter and post their scorecards in real time. And, Although I do that myself sometimes and, you know, that's all well and good. It's very hard unless you're not checking your, it's similar to what you're saying about not looking at, um, you know, your co-commentator scorecards. Unless you're only posting your own scores and not even checking the timeline or, or listening to the TV commentary, you're going to be kind of coloured or swayed a little bit one way or another potentially and not based on your own judgment, which of course the, the perfect kind of conditions for, for scoring is headphones in like you say and, and and watching only what your your eyes are telling you um all of which is to say i think if we were to take a few steps back and start at the very very top a lot of people will know how to score a fight or, or certainly think they know how to score a fight and people will always say well boxing's subjective and i saw it like this and therefore the fact that i saw it completely different to you is is valid which is okay up to a point, but that isn't to say that there aren't set scoring criteria when it comes to scoring boxing. So although you may have perceived the, the fight differently, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily right in that not every opinion can be as valid as another. Um, is that a little bit harsh to say, or is that actually the correct approach? Oh, I, th I think that's absolutely fair. I think the, the argument that people just turn around and say, oh, everything's subjective. It's like someone you know, using the argument of, oh, I'm entitled to my opinion, it's freedom of speech. Some, some opinions are better informed than others. 
um, not all opinions are equally valid on any subject because some people know a lot more about some subjects than other people. Uh, this isn't something I would generally kind of take to Twitter to say because it will just invite um, a, <laughs> a torrent of abuse. Right, but, right. but I know what I'm looking for when it comes to scoring a fight. And I've talked to a lot of other judges about this. And not everybody's always on the same page. But it's not as subjective, I don't think, as people would like to claim. Yeah, because yeah. What, what I'm looking for, basically is the first, I have a few different criteria and they go in sort of descending order of importance. The first thing I'm looking for when it comes to separating two fighters is I'm trying to work out, and this is a key thing to remember as well, first of all, for anyone scoring a fight, is that you are not scoring a fight, you are scoring 12 three-minute individual fights that exist independently of one another, that have no relation to one another, and how you score one in no way affects how you score any of the others. So you score the first round, and then you reset, and then you score the second round, and whatever has happened in the first round doesn't matter. That's what you're doing, basically. I've, I've um, heard you describe it as that before. Um, I think it was probably on, on a broadcast, and I, I think it, it really sums up quite nicely the... the I, <laughs> Scoring is, is kind of episodic in that, in that sense, isn't it? You, you have a round and you score the round and the next round is, is totally distinct from the other. There's no, I think, it was, I think it was Max Kellerman who came out of a line and I forget the fight now. He said, um, someone's won the story of this fight. And that's fine, but in, yeah. when it comes to the actual scorecards, it's, it's totally irrelevant who won the narrative in, in terms of the the you know the the swings and the peaks and troughs of a fight that's kind of irrelevant if you're scoring a fight round by round isn't it yeah it is it's completely irrelevant um i know exactly what he's saying there uh, and that's a neat way of summing it up and and i like his stuff kellerman i think he speaks yeah, a, yeah. Lot of, a lot of sense but that is a good way to put it because what a lot of people do when they're watching it on the tv and i don't blame them for doing this because if you say you bought a pay-per-view or you just want to enjoy the boxing or, or whatever it is who's going to sit there having turned the sound off um, and insisted that no one else is in the room talking to them and tears 12, you know, tears a piece of paper into 12 slips, writes their score down at the end of each round, puts it over the other side right, of the room, right. makes sure they doesn't keep a running tally. Who does that? Well, I do that. You know, people like me do that sometimes. <laughs> but if you don't do that and the fight goes the distance, then what you're essentially doing is you are judging it as one 36-minute long round. And when you do that, what you will remember are the major moments. So somebody could win three of those 12 rounds really big, and you'll remember that. They might lose the other nine, according to the way you score boxing, but that is what you'll remember. And you'll remember a strong finish too, things like that. So you can't... When I see people online saying, oh, I had it 116, 112... And then so, I don't do this anymore, but sometimes I'd say, okay, so, you know, how did you break it down? And I'd say, oh, I didn't score it round by round. And I just think, well, how can you give me a score then? I looked right. at it and yeah. thought, oh, I think he's probably won about two thirds of that fight, or I think he's won that fight. Oh, 116, 112 sounds good. That's, that's not how you score it. So as I said, you're scoring 12 individual three minute fights. And, and that is what it's about. Um, and you have to make sure that you follow that kind of discipline. And the first thing that I'm looking for is in that three minutes, I'm trying to work out who has landed the greater tonnage of punch 
you know, the greatest aggregate weight of punch. Not who's landed the most punches, because punch stats for me are pretty meaningless. I know they, they separate them into punch and power punch, but that's far too simplistic. And they're compiled by humans at ringside. Uh, judges are humans at ringside. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing, isn't it? Punch stats are subjective as, as anything else, yeah. yeah. I'm not knocking the guys who do it. It was a good idea, and, and some TV likes it, but I don't, it's not really relevant, I don't think. So you're trying to work out who was... A good way to think about it is to think about a computer game, two, two characters with their energy bar at the top. It's full at the start of the round. Now, you deplete the other person's energy bar by hitting them. At the end of the round, whoever's got the fullest bar wins. Because professional boxing is about trying to do damage and hurt your opponent. It's not yeah. just about hitting the target. That's why I said you've got to, you have to work out who's landed the greater tonnage. Because you might, you might, you might pitter-patter me 10 times. I snap your head back once with a good solid right hand. That, for me, wipes out everything that you've done. But th these are the calculations you have to make. And it's not easy, but that, that's the first thing. If they're level on that, then personally, I go to defence. So you, we've, we've landed the same, we've landed the same tonnage, but you've made me miss more than I've made you miss. That means you win the round, the way I do it. And then I'll go for, I'll go to your proactivity is something that people like to take into account. You know, who's looking like the aggressor, who's looking to make the fight. I think people lend too much weight to that at times because aggression has to be. I agree. Effective. Yeah. Aggression okay. has to be effective, but people will some, a lot of judges and then they're happy to say it will give a lot of credit to someone who is on the front foot and going forward. But I'm not really looking for that particularly. I'm looking for who's landing. Um, the third criteria I'll look for does relate to that. If, if I can't separate them in terms of offense, if you like, which is obviously the punching, um, defense, then I, so basically you've got a round where really very little has happened. And, and that'll often occur in the opening rounds of a fight, particularly the opening round. Nobody's really landed anything. Nobody's really tried to land anything, particularly in terms of throwing. Um, but then I'm looking for kind of body language. Who looks like the boss, even though they haven't really done anything? Who's kind of shuffled forward with that front foot a little bit and looked to try and crowd their man? So they have been proactive. They are looking to be proactive without really doing a lot. Um, and you can win a round like that. If there's nothing else separating two fighters, then they, they, I don't score drawn rounds. So that's the last kind of thing that I would look for. Um, because you'll always be able to find something. But then, you know, you've got, you've made the decision on the round on, on, on the split of a hair, really. Um, and that's where you can get, that's where you can get a spread, um, a spread of, of scores. I mean, quite often I'll get to the end of a fight and I might be explaining it. Uh, and I'll say, you know, this is the kind of fight where 116, 112 in either direction and anything in between kind of works. Yeah, people don't okay. really hear that sometimes because they think like I said before they think you're they think you're just bottling out but I'll give my score I'll give what I've got but then you know there's nothing wrong with qualifying it and saying well you know there's four really close rounds in there if you give them all one way you get 116 112 that way if you give them all the other way you get 116 112 the other way if you have a mixture you get something in between you said there are no drawn rounds, um, which is, is something I, I agree with as well, um, unless it's kind of exceptional 
circumstances. You do see some of those on 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 Sky broadcasts, particularly uh, certainly less so. I think in the in the in the US, um, but you you do see a few of those crop up on on Sky cards. Why, why do you obviously in, in a ten point must system, at least one guy has to to get the ten. But why are you opposed to those? I, I just think that you should be able in three minutes to find something to hang your hat on. It might not be much, but I think that's why I have like different kind of steps to go through where I think, okay, and you've got to make your mind up quickly um, mm. because that, that final, that final criteria for me is one that will only come into play right at the very end of the round, because throughout the round, you're trying to assess who's landing more, who's doing more damage. And then you think, okay, defensively, how they're getting on, who's making who miss more. So you've got that kind of going through your mind. Then you'll get to the end of the round and you'll think, oh, okay, they're, I can't separate them on those. Right, okay, who, who looked like them? Like I said, who looked like the boss? And then you just make a decision. Um, but I think you can do that. Drawn rounds are generally given early in the fight, I find. Often people will, will give the opening round as a draw because, as I said previously, often yeah. that is one of those rounds where very little happens. And I don't have a massive problem with it, but I don't really don't think you should be... And I think some people do have maybe kind of their own little rule, which might be, I won't give more than one. But the thing is, that means you always do give at least one because you've got it in your mind that, oh, I'm allowed one. I'll allow myself one. So that means that you will always give one. I just prefer to make the rule of, you know, I don't allow myself to give drawn rounds. I remember talking to Steve Weisfeld about this. He's a New York judge, an international judge. I think a really good judge. I've hardly ever seen a card of his that I've disagreed with. Um, And I just started doing this at that point. I think it was, it was in Cardiff for um, Joshua Parker, I think. And um, so I hadn't quite started doing it yet, but it was something I was really thinking about. And I said, Steve, I, I I noticed from looking at your scores, it doesn't look like you ever give draw rounds. And he just smiled and he said, no, never give draw. I said, I never <laughs> give draw rounds. Um, and I just thought, okay, well, that'll do for me. So what do you think a lot of people miss when it comes to scoring? I mean, from, from the way I see it, often, I think certainly often, I would say infighting and, and particularly body work gets um, underappreciated. Let's say, I think a lot of the time, a, a guy can be doing really, really good work on the inside, um, even when getting pushed back um, and, and kind of winning those exchanges. Um, and, and obviously defense is something that, that I think for me gets really underrated. Although you said it's kind of secondary to, to clean punches, of course, but I think too often you, you see the guy who is kind of an ineffective aggressor, a guy who's coming forward swinging, pushing the fight, but not doing very much and getting countered clean and the not necessarily the consensus, but the groundswell of opinion would be that that guy actually did better than he, maybe I thought yeah, he did or, I, or, or judges. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think, I think the most common, for me, like it sounds like we're on the same page with this, with this stuff, but for me, the, the thing that I disagree with most generally is the amount of credit given to someone for coming forward. Um, because as you said, it's, it's got to be effective aggression. And, and often you'll see someone coming forward and it's not effective aggression. And like you say, they are getting countered and because someone's boxing off the back foot and they're reactive rather than proactive, they seem to be given less credit for that, but that might be part of their game plan to, to bring their opponent onto them. There's all right. sorts of things right. that, 
to go into it. And, and I think that is one, I think that's one where people look at it and they do tend to, to get that fairly wrong. And that, and that, that can really come into play when, as I say, you're not scoring it round by round and you're scoring it as one 36 minute long round. Because if your abiding memory of that 36 minutes is that one person was always coming forward, and let's say that they also have a couple of big moments where they maybe nearly knock their opponent down, then you're going to think that they've won the fight. Like the, the one I always think about is, is Katie Taylor against Delphine Pursue because I was ringside for that. And I scored that a draw. And one of the judges scored it a draw and two of them scored it to Taylor, 6-4 six, six, in rounds. Yeah. Online, uh, on TV viewers, the consensus was that soon had won that fight and she won it comfortably and it was a robbery that's what people were saying and that just was not what i saw because pursuing won her rounds bigger than taylor won her rounds yep. she had the biggest moments in the fight and she had a strong finish and she was always coming forward but for me when i looked at my card if i'm unsure about a round i just put a little question mark by it just to remind myself that that was a real tight one and it could have gone either way but at the end of that fight i had five for pursuing i had five for taylor no question marks. Steve Farhood, who was, who was sitting near me, he was doing the car for the zone. He had exactly the same thing. But watching it on TV, all anybody could talk about was how, oh, Pursuit was always coming forward and always doing this and always doing that. And you just think that's fine. And she did have success. Um, but that's not, that's, that people get blinded by that. And I think they, they definitely did. They definitely did in that fight. I think another thing that I'd like to point out on particularly actually with that with that show um is the idea of bias and for for a better this is really quite difficult because when you're scoring a fight and you put money on a guy it's very very tempting to um what do what i call scoring with your wallet so if, if there's any kind of benefit of doubt that you can give to your guy or in any kind of way that you can convince yourself that okay this is going my way it's the, the temptation is there to, to kind of give him the benefit of that regardless of you know what your opinion is, is doing it's not going to have an outcome on, on the actual fight itself but even in hindsight when you're when you're saying well it wasn't that bad a bet because I had him winning actually you know he, he might not have done if you if you were completely completely objective to that and I think that on that um Madison Square Garden card you had it obviously the main event you had Joshua um yeah, being stopped by Ruiz, but you also had Katie Taylor getting run very close and you had Josh Kelly being run very close. And I think for some, there's, there's obviously an appetite for the underdog to win because it's a nice feel-good story uh, and, and maybe they'll just be cheering them on. But for a, a, a kind of wannabe objective of score at home, how, how do you go about removing the bias? Or have you got any tips for kind of saying, okay, this is this is what you're watching and remove that I guess that element of narrative from proceeding completely, regardless of what you want to happen. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly it. You've just, you've just nailed it there. Basically you need to, what I've started doing now, and this is a, a tip I picked up from, from Barry Jones for fights I commentate on as well, is that um, I do bundles of research for fights, but what I now don't do is really read any opinion, opinion pieces mm. on who people thinks, uh, who people think is going to win. Um, because you'll then build up an idea in your own head of what you think is going to happen. And that's dangerous 
because once you've got a narrative in your head of what you think is going to happen or what you expect to happen, it doesn't mean that it'll necessarily, uh, um, well, with me, it definitely wouldn't affect my, my commentary. You just call it as you see it. But what it can do is lead you to be a bit surprised if the thing that you don't think is going to happen does happen. And then rather than give credit to the person who's winning when you maybe thought they weren't going to win, you can start to think too much about, well, what, what, what's the guy who I thought was going to win doing? What's he up to? Um, and so you can start to criticise them rather than give credit due. I mean, that's not really related to, to betting, but you, really what you have to do is, and Harry Gibbs, the old referee, put, put this best, is that when you're watching a fight as a referee, and this applies to judges, and it definitely applies to what I do, you don't see who's the champion or the challenger, you don't see records, you don't see bookmakers' odds, you don't see house fighter away fighter, you don't see anything except for two differently coloured pairs of shorts. That's it. I know it's a really simple thing to say, but that is what you have to do. And also, with, with one thing I found interesting, because I do have a punt on fights myself every now and again, I, my rule is I can't, I can't bet on ones I'm commentating on, but <laughs> that leaves plenty of other ones. What I find is that equally as when you're watching it, you need to like remove all the hype, if you like. When, when you're trying to work out what might might happen in the fight again boxing is the ultimate hype sport and i think it does invade odds and sometimes you'll see odds and i'll look at them and think wow that is crazy oh absolutely like, yeah yeah i don't like i won a, quite a lot of money on josh warrington beating lee selby now i thought that was a 50 50 fight myself um but josh warrington was seven to two yeah at home undefeated fighters seven to two mental odds um and, and you know, there are others that have occurred in the last few years. And what you need to do is just look at what has actually happened in real life. What have these fighters actually done? And often you will find, particularly if you've got a prospect at home against a foreign fighter who might be a really pretty good fighter, but not a name, the home fighter will be a massive favourite because he's at home and people know who he or she is. And yeah. then you look at the odds on the away fighter and you'll just think, wow. That, again, it's not, I don't look at him and just think, oh, he's nailed on to win. But I'll look at it and just think, that, that price is enormous for what is probably a 50-50, 60-45 maybe. I think you touched on it there very well, actually. Um, and it, it probably comes down to confirmation bias a lot of the time. And, and really, confirmation bias is the one of the worst enemies of any any kind of sports better or, or someone really kind of trying to take it seriously because what it means is that if you only take from watching an event unfold it unfolding in the way that you thought it would and if it doesn't then that's because of the fault of the your guy your you know your horse in the race and not the either the failings in your own judgment or the um the accomplishments of the the, the, you know the person you haven't bet on you're never going to learn very much and you're never going to take from it what you should have done in terms of observation and and and, and kind of the, the mistakes or, or or kind of failings that made you think well actually that's why i'm going the other way so i think yeah it's it, it's somehow removing it, it's a fairly big ask isn't it removing the entire outside world removing all the pre-fight build-up um and, and any kind of intangibles and just really scoring and, and betting based on individual merits. But um, I guess that's the, that's the yeah, challenge I, we've got. Yeah, 
it, it's not as daunting as it sounds though because if you get into a habit of it if you get into your kind of routine you just get better at doing it it's like anything you get better at kind of cancelling out the noise and yeah if you're trying to assess something ahead of time and maybe that hype hasn't really hit fever pitch yet it's a little bit easier to do you can just you can i, I write the notes and all do all the research for sky and i do them sort of relatively ahead of time so i'm kind of like um like i, I always want to be pretty much finished with 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 the main body of it about three weeks out from the fight and then i'll just add little bits in that i might hear uh, in the in the closing few weeks but if you do it in a, it, i find by doing that it's easier just to not be tempted to watch and read stuff that i'm now trying to avoid and you can just look at it and just think okay so what's this fighter actually done i know how good people think he's going to be but what has he actually done um, and then you look at the opponent and, and you do the same thing for them. Um, I, I think another one, actually, if I had to give any kind of little tip is that quite often fights that are billed as being blinking, you'll miss it all out wars actually go the distance. Um, yeah, yeah. Quite often might be a bit of an exaggeration, but, but relatively often you, 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 the, the hype will be, oh, you know, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. Think about Bellew cleverly the second time. Um, I had quite a good score on that one because I remember just thinking, oh, Bellew's just got such an obvious size advantage here. He doesn't need to try and take Nathan Cleverly's head off. I mean, that's that's a high risk strategy. Right. So I thought, I think this might go, I think this might go the stretch. Um, Richard Rayapur against Jack Massey, that was another one. Rayapur is a big puncher. So everybody's going to think that's going to finish entirely the distance. But I thought, oh, Jack Massey's a really well-schooled fighter. He's an ABA champion. You know? He knows what he's doing in there. He's not just going to walk onto one. Um, so I went for points there and, and that kind of thing happens. Um, yeah, big fights going the distance more often than people, more often than advertised, because of course, you know, TV and, and everybody's going to say, wow, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be an epic. It's going to be Hagler Hearns and all the rest of it. And, and yeah, sure. You do get a reasonable amount of knockouts, but you do. I mean, a lot of fights go, a lot of fights go to points, don't they? Yeah. It's, it's kind of similar to, um, I think compared to, uh, I guess you draw an equivalence to, to football betting or, or any, any kind of sports betting really where the, the onus is on action. And so if you're betting on football, by far the best result for the bookmakers is a low scoring game or a nil-nil draw because people bet on goals. They want to see action, particularly if they're watching it. Um, they, and they want to see events and a kind of definitive um, kind of milestones and outcomes and I think that applies in, in a similar way to boxing in a sense that if people think, think someone's going to win and they've got a really strong fancy that they're going to win then they will lean to more towards the knockout and often you'll see that when you you're kind of looking at the, uh, the method of victory market the the overpriced outcome will be the decision rather than the uh, rather than knockout, it's very. I'd say it's very rare, but it's it, less often. I see the, the kind of the inverse. And I look at a knockout and think, oh, that's overpriced. It's normally the other way. That I look at the decision and think, that's a bit too big. You're listening to the Boxing Betting Show, and you can hear part two of that extended interview of Andy Clark on next week's show. With such a big fight weekend ahead, I thought it was only right that I give you some of my personal opinions on this weekend's action. 
We'll start on Friday night with the Frank Warren Queensbury card um, from the BT Studios um, in East London. Uh, the Definitely Quiet BT Studios. Uh, they experimented with a bit of crowd noise in the first show. I, I can't remember hearing any of that in the second, so that may have gone down as a failed experiment. I think actually uh, it, it kind of works better without it, with boxing being a, a little bit more kind of visceral in a sense. You, you can really kind of hear how hard some of these guys are punching. It, it was evident, certainly in... Um, uh, Joe Joyce uh, against Valish last weekend. Boxing without crowds certainly isn't the same, but I think it is livable. And while we're not going to get the big, big fights made, um, having boxing back without a crowd is, is a damn sight better than not having any boxing at all. The main event on Friday night is uh, Lyndon Arthur against Dex Spellman. Um, and I've seen a couple of people say that this is probably the best fight or one of the better fights of the entire Queensbury kind of comeback schedule. And I'd be inclined to agree. It's it's a well-matched um, domestic fight. Lyndon Arthur, of course, was meant to fight Anthony Yard on the uh, now twice rescheduled Dubai Joyce uh, card, which is now set for October, but may well be put back yet again, depending on what happens with uh, crowd restrictions in the UK. Um, Arthur, of course, was an underdog against Yard, but was figured to be a pretty live uh, underdog at that. Uh, against Spellman, he is the favourite and, and a reasonably heavy favourite. One to six, um, Spellman nine to two underdog. I don't think that's any surprise, really. We saw Spellman last time out give a game effort, get but get outboxed, really, against uh, Shaq and Pitters in their rematch. But what bodes a little bit better for Spellman in this fight is that Arthur is a very different kind of fighter to Pitters. Pitters is really, really kind of rangy, uh, light heavyweight, six foot six. Arthur's a, a bit stouter, um, six foot two. So Spellman is still giving up some height, but you would expect them to be in each other's wheelhouse a little bit more than Pitters, who's quite happy to keep Spellman at range um, for both their fights, really. And uh, he, he won well both times. The British light heavyweight division is pretty interesting. You've got Buatzi, Johnson, Yard, the pretty clear top three. Um, behind them, you have guys like Burton, Richards, um, Arthur, uh, who else? Uh, Spellman, of course, as well. And those, I think what that means is that this is a fight between two guys in contention towards the, the bottom end of the top 10. Um, and both will be eyeing up um, bigger things, of course. Um, and presumably the winner will get their shot at Yard. All of that said, it's not too straightforward to make a case for Spellman at 9-2 here. Um, eight KOs and 16 wins. He's lost three, although never been stopped. Um, Arthur is the certainly the more athletic fighter of the two. He is the puncher of the two as well. Um, and that was figured to be his main chance against um, Yard, of course, as well. But Arthur at 1-6, um, which is 86% uh, implied probability, you're going to either need deep pockets or a fairly significant risk appetite to be getting involved with him at uh, one to six. So looking then at the, the method of victory, an Arthur KO is still the, the favoured outcome. It's um, 10 to 11, or 11 to 10 on, um, so minus 110 in US odds. Spellman, as I say, never been stopped. He's, he's durable. He knows what he's doing. Um, but I, I think obviously with two of those defeats against Pitters and one in a three-rounder, those three losses on his record may be a little bit deceiving. Now, famous last words, but I wouldn't be surprised to see this one go long. An Arthur stoppage wouldn't surprise me at all, um, but I think it probably would be in the second half of the fight. And at 52% likelihood, 
I think that's perhaps a little bit high. Um, I think there's more uh, meat on the bone in the seven to four uh, plus 175 Linden Arthur decision. Moving on to Saturday night and what will be hopefully a sunny evening over in Brentwood, Essex for the first night of the matchroom fight camp. And I'm never quite sure where to start with these. Do I start with the main event? Do I start in the reverse running order and end with the main event? So instead, I'm going to touch on the widest um, odds on the card and the one that kind of really challenges, I think, the, the notion that at fight camp there are no easy fights because the bookmakers disagree, uh, in theory, at least. Now, Dalton Smith, um, a 23-year-old light welterweight, uh, is a really, really good fighter. He is a former ABA champion, competed in the World Series of Boxing as well, and has a chance to be the first big star we've seen out of Sheffield since Kell Brook. He's as short a price as 1 to 20, uh, so 95% imply probability that he'll beat Nathan Bennett in the first fight on Saturday night. Now, prices in boxing are just opinions, albeit opinions condensed and condensed and condensed by the weight of public money until they're at a point where people think they're about right and they won't bother condensing them anymore. An implied probability of 95% suggests that actually this isn't going to be a, a difficult night for Dalton Smith. It's kind of important to know, I think, that a 1-20 to 20 favourite doesn't necessarily mean that the belief is he'll have an easy night, but the belief is that he will ultimately prevail by one form or another. Now, the fact that Smith is a 1 to 20 favourite, um, best price is 1 to 14, so minus 1400. Uh, Bennett out at 7 to 1, 8 to 1, as big as 10 to 1, so plus 1000. Um, doesn't mean that this isn't a well matched fight, however, what it does mean is that most people disagree. Next up is Fabio Wardley against Simon Villilli um, for the vacant English title, which was um, last held and since relinquished by Daniel Dubois. Wardley is a bit of an interesting case. You may well know the story already. Um, essentially no amateur career whatsoever came over straight from white collar, um, which is an unusual um, case um, and, and kind of built up a bit of a reputation as a sparring partner. Um, he sparred the likes of uh, Usyk and, and Fury and, and and others as well. Um, and he's a, a prospect in the very kind of raw sense of the word, really, uh, managed by Dillian White. He's 25 years old, six foot five, 230 pounds. So he's a, he's a bit of a big lump. Um, but actually, he's he kind of belies his uh, physique a little bit. He's Although he's very heavy handed, he's he's a decent mover. Um, he, he's a bit unorthodox. Um, and, and that kind of goes hand in hand with the rawness, I think. 8-0 now, um, he's won all but one of them inside the distance. Um, but this is a this is a decent step up for him quite early on as well. Um, Valili, really better known for his days at cruiserweight, uh, is much more experienced, but he's been around the block a bit as well. Maybe best known, um, well, maybe not best known, but certainly the highest level of opposition he fought. He was, he was kind of fed really as cannon fodder to Meris Breedis a, a few years ago, um, back when uh, Bellew and, and Breedis were, was kind of being lined up for the WBC um, before Bellew's move up to uh, to heavyweight. Valili then put in a, a fragile kind of performance um, against Craig Glover a couple of years ago, um, and it was a, it was a strange one. But then look, there, there may have been reasons. I think he was. He was concussed early on, um, to be honest, in that fight and may well have been struggling at the weight as well. Um, 
since moving up to heavyweight, um, he's unbeaten four fights in. On his best day, he can be a bit of a, a, a kind of a, a bit of an awkward customer. He's a wily operator sometimes. Um, but, and, and this is the question, he is vulnerable. Look, I'd be lying, um, to be honest, if I said I'd seen all of his fights at heavyweight. Um, but certainly at cruiserweight, he showed that he can be fragile. And against uh, Wardley, he's giving up height, he's giving up weight, and he's giving up natural power. How to word this? I'm not sure at this stage, a, a kind of real surging, hard-charging heavyweight like Wardley can be with with extreme physicality. Really, is is a favourable kind of style matchup or timing matchup for Valili. The odds are, are quite wide, um, considering Wardley one to ten, uh, so minus one thousand. Valili about seven to one, so plus seven hundred. There is an argument to say that's too wide, um, clearly based on the experience alone. There's no doubt that Wardley's had it all his own way so far, um, and it's no slight on him really to say that he is learning on the job, given his lack of um, amateur pedigree. Uh, as a title fight, it's a 10-rounder. Um, I think that sways the pendulum really towards the Wardley stoppage. 10 rounds is a long time to stay out of the way of a guy like that. And I... Ex- I, I and I expect that to be Valili's game plan. I think he'll try and maybe fiddle his way around, um, frustrate Wardley, and, and and kind of old man him, you know, take him into deeper waters uh, and and see what he's got. The fight to go the distance is nine to two, so plus four fifty, less than a one in five chance. Um, the bookies reckon. But I think if I was looking at it and saying I quite fancy Valili here, I might well be tempted to take the nine to two, that either man wins on the cards rather than take the 7-1 to one that Valili wins by any means. And then, of course, you've got the chance of both uh, men or indeed the draw at the time of the final bell. If you're asking me to make a prediction, I think Wardley will win inside the distance. So the question really is when. Skybet go 8-11 to 11 that it's in the first half of the fight. So rounds 1-5, to five, of course, in a 10-rounder. Uh, it's minus 137 uh, in American odds. And rounds 6-10, to 11-4. I think there's a little bit of appeal in the latter, um, plus 275 then, um, that Wardley gets it done in the second half. Maybe there's just a few feeling out rounds there. Um, I think that is a factor really for all fights coming back. It's a big, big occasion. It's a big event. It's a it's a kind of a, a unique stage. And there may well just be a few feeling out rounds. You know, training has been affected. Um, people haven't been in the gym quite so much. And... Obviously, everyone's been been inactive as well. So don't be surprised if people want to get a few rounds under their belt before stepping up the gears. And so on balance, I think there's probably a better than 27% chance that Wardley will win inside the second half. But ultimately, what I think is going to happen shouldn't have too much bearing on the price that has the most appeal. And of course, what we're looking for is the biggest gap between the implied probability by the odds and the perceived value that we've got in our heads or scrawled down on a bit of paper or the formulated value we've got modelled somewhere in a spreadsheet. James Tennyson versus Gavin Gwynn for the vacant British lightweight title. It's quite rare you get a real stinker of a British title fight, but it does, I mean, it does happen, um, but I don't expect one here. Uh, Tennyson is fun to watch, actually. He's, um, He's a puncher. He's vulnerable, uh, he, he's, and he's kind of all action while he's 
while he's around. Um, and that's some good wins. Um, he's, he's beaten Martin Joseph Ward, stopped him in five, uh, stopped Ryan Doyle, stopped Declan Geraghty, and last time out, stopped Craig Evans as well. So he generally, well, look, he, he generally wins by stoppage, but when he loses, he loses by stoppage as well. Tennyson then, the four to one on favourite, so minus 400 uh, best price, a little bit shorter than that in places as well. Uh, one to six, uh, minus 600, minus uh, 500, one to five. And Gwyn, uh, best price of seven to two, so plus 350. And it would be a sizable upset, really. But what Gwyn does have going for him in this fight is his size. Um, six foot tall uh, or thereabouts, which makes him a really big lightweight. Um, and Tennyson, 5'8", bang about where you'd expect him to be, really. Gwyn's best chance, then, you'd think, would be to use that range advantage. And obviously, with the power difference there and the knockout threat that Tennyson does carry, Gwyn will try and somehow negate that. Over the 12 rounds, I think Tennyson has enough to get this done. Um, at the price, I think he's solid. He's a pretty solid favourite for me. Four to one on. I don't have any argument with that at all. If you're looking for a bigger price, though, um, we turn to the method of victory. Um, you have 11 to eight um, best price that Tennyson gets it done inside the 12 rounds. Uh, so what's that? Plus 138, uh, 42% implied probability uh, that he does. And Tennyson by decision, uh, six to four, um, so plus 150, 40%. If you're making a case of Gwyn, looking at the records, the obvious route to go is with the um, decision, but the, the odds don't agree. There's not much difference at all between uh, Gwyn by decision, 15 to two, so plus 750, uh, and 13 to two, plus 650 on the Gwyn stoppage. Um, for me, the latter of the two there should be much longer than it is. Um, and if I was to talk myself into a bet on Gwyn, uh, and he's got a reasonable chance um, here, I think it will be a good fight. Uh, the decision at 15 to 2 plus 750, so so less than 12% chance that Gwyn will get the nod on the cards. And I, I think that I can see the argument for that. Um, nonetheless, so the one that I kind of gravitate most towards here is the Tennyson stoppage. I think it's rightly priced actually as the shortest of all of the uh, the main outcomes in the methods market. But with that size difference to overcome, I can imagine a lot of people out there will be quite happy with the one to four, the minus 400 on Tennyson. Uh, and I can see that cropping up in a lot of accumulators this weekend. Okay, still with me? Good. The best fight on the card, I think, is Jordan Gill um, against Reese Bellotti. Um, we said tennis and Gwyn was a good domestic fight. I think this is a better one. Gill is the favourite, and rightly so. He was, he was kind of flying, really, um, and, and and rightly tipped for big things. I was one of those who kind of felt he was um, really going to go some way, and he, he, and he still well might, um, but if he does so, he's going to have to do it in the face of adversity. Um, I was ringside the night that he, he kind of dismantled Brian Doyle, really. And Doyle was fresh off a win over Gill's opponent here, uh, Bellotti. Um, Gill was fantastic that night. Um, didn't put a foot wrong. Stopped Doyle in seven. And he felt that, OK, this is a guy who's ready to be fast-tracked a little bit. That wasn't the case. He ran into uh, a Mexican called Enrique Tonoco. Um, stopped in eight rounds that night. Uh, Tonoco, Tonoco was pretty relentless that night. And Gill, uh, by all accounts, was ill. Gil was ill, uh, going into the going into the fight and re refused to drop out. It, you know, it was 
Um, it was meant to be his night, and he, he didn't want to, and he didn't want to withdraw, and he paid the price. Tonoko's body attack and uh, Gil's kind of gastro problems, I believe, uh, were not a good combination, and it was a real, it was a real setback, and you had all that momentum come shuddering to a halt. He since rebounded just with a six rounder over in Italy, um, and this is his first big test. Um, in Belotti since his first big test, I guess. Um, Belotti is an interesting one. Like, like there was a time actually, I, I there was a time when he was coming through the ranks that I really felt Reese Belotti was at least going to get do better at British level than he has so far. If that makes sense, I wasn't kind of tipping him for world honours or anything, but I felt that he would really. Um, he, he was really capable of, of, of kind of getting a, a stronghold um, domestically. He, he, and But like Gil, all of Belotti's momentum hit a, a skid. Um, when he came up against Ryan Doyle, that was a huge upset, as was uh, Tonoko over Gil, of course. Um, Gil was about 1 to 50, 1 to 100 favourite. Um, Tonoko, anything kind of 20 to 1 and up. And Doyle... Uh, Best price ten to one, I believe, but anything from seven to one to eight to one uh, available on the day of the fight as well. Uh, and you heard my guest in the last series, um, John Evans, retell the uh, the confidence that the Doyle camp had in their man that night, uh, and uh, I think a lot of people made a <laughs> a lot of money on him. Um, there's been a bit of money for Gill this week as well. A few firms now going one to five, minus five hundred. Uh, best price on Belotti, 7-2, that's with Skybet, um, plus 350. Belotti is the puncher of the two, uh, but I think Gil, for me, is the sharper puncher. Um, good mover, very, very precise, very accurate, and I think that will be the key to this fight. There are a few ways that Gil might approach this, but I think he might look at it a bit cautiously. It's 11-10 on, uh, so minus 110 that Gill wins a decision, uh, 52% probability. And actually, I think that's a little bit um, underplaying the chances. I think, uh, for me, a Gill decision was a much shorter price than 10 to 11 before um, the prices came out. I would have had it about 4 to 6. Um, so there's potentially a bit to play with there. And the least favoured outcome is a Bellotti decision, uh, 10 to 1 best price, 8 to 1, 9 to 1 more generally. Perhaps looking at... Lottie's uh, recent record with splits, um, that, that kind of makes sense as well. Um, in the main event then, Ted Cheeseman versus Sam Eggington over 12 rounds. <laughs> it's an interesting fight, isn't it? Um, we say it a lot, but I, I, I really can't see how this will be boring. Um, it's one that, when paired together, you think maybe by the end of 12 rounds, if it were to go that far, it would kind of look like, I don't know, like... Night of the Living Dead in there or something. Um, both guys, at least in the past, have shown a tendency, I think it's fair to say, to fight uh, front foot first and sometimes head um, with little regard really for what's coming back. Um, I think the phrase take two to land one applies very well to both these guys so far. However, the more that I think about this fight, um, and it's kind of echoing something that you heard from Andy Clark earlier in the show, Often when it comes to these big, big hyped action fights, they go the distance. And 
sometimes they disappoint along the way and sometimes they don't live up to the height and, and sometimes they'll be a great fight but they won't end early now Cheeseman as we know has had a few um, difficulties outside the ring as well as inside recently um, lost to Sergio Garcia um, real kind of uh, good technician um, up at European level and then came back and drew um, with Kieran Conway in a fight it was really expected to win last time out then lost to uh, Scott Fitzgerald um, gave a, a good account of himself, but it was a, a, a loss on the cards. Um, so no win in three. Uh, Eggington potentially revitalised uh, in a sense, I guess. He's had a, a tough career. Um, stopped by Liam Smith, um, stopped by Hassan Makwimwo. Um, massive, massive upset. Uh, Mohamed Mamoun, Bradley Skeet. Only lost to good fighters, really. I say that with a a little bit of a question mark because McQueen where we don't know much about full stop but there's a lot of miles on the clock for Eggington for a guy who's 26 years old all of that said he was kind of going nowhere I think he was he was thinking about what he wanted to do until he had a chance to fight on a matchroom card down in Italy uh, went over there and stopped the local guy uh, in two rounds and put him back in contention so suddenly he's headlining um, fight camp it's um it's a similar set of prices, really, to the previous two fights. Um, Cheeseman, roughly around a one to four favourite, um, a little bit closer in places, two to seven, so minus three fifty, uh, two to nine in places as well. Uh, Eggington, uh, three to one, fifteen to four best price, uh, with the draw out at twenty five to one. Um, in the side markets, Cheeseman by KO is a general six to five uh, plus one twenty with a decision at seven to four plus one seventy five. Eggington uh, KO five to one and a decision up at nine to one. I think what I would say, if you're looking at the methods here and saying I don't know, you kind of be reflecting what the market is thinking as well. Um, while Cheeseman is the worthy favourite, surely Eggington will be thinking if there's ever a time to face Ted Cheeseman and beat Ted Cheeseman, it's when he's winless in three fights and inactive in nine months. One of the most difficult markets here, I think, is the fight to go the distance. Uh, yes versus no. It's five to four plus 125 that it will see the 12 rounds and no uh, it's priced generally around four to seven. Uh, 8 to 11, so between minus 138 and minus 175. I think that's a really tricky call, actually. I think there's an argument that it will go 12 rounds. I think you could see Cheeseman uh, boxing. I think you could see Cheeseman choosing to box Eggington for 12 rounds. You could see uh, this kind of all-out hellacious war of attrition that goes the distance. Uh, or you could see a firefight, and you, you might imagine Eggington would be the guy to wilt first, but... I wouldn't be rushing to get involved in that. Arguably, the price of most interest here is in the group round betting. Um, and I, I quite like the look of Ted Cheeseman in round 7 to 12, uh, about 3 to 1, um, 2 to 1, 5 to 2. So a little bit of a spread, but Cheeseman isn't a huge one punch, one punch kind of guy. It's this budding power and this kind of relentless charge forward style, at least when he's employing that style. And Eggington, even on his worst day, is game for as long as he lasts. So so the idea that Cheeseman might force a stoppage in the second half of the fight, um, I don't know, maybe with the referee stepping in, 
that kind of feels like the most likely outcome. Three to one um, plus 300 implies 25% likelihood. Maybe if I was to get involved in that fight, I think that would be the one I'd be interested in. Um, but it's a tricky call. And that is it. I hope you've enjoyed the fairly whistle-stop tour of the weekend's action. Enjoy the fights this weekend. Uh, Please, please only gamble with money you can afford to lose. And the show will be back next week for much more of the same. Thank you very much for listening.